guys. Okay. So we are recording, Johnny. I'm here with Johnny Sanfilippo of the amazing blog, Granola Shotgun. And this is the Root Simple Podcast. And guess what? We're going to talk about COVID-19. I don't think that's a surprise. So how are you doing, Johnny? I'm doing very well. And uh, I'm glad to be talking to you again. Yeah, I wanted to thank you. You reached out to me because you just did an amazing blog post on your preparation for the crisis we're in. So uh, first of all, I guess we should, uh, you've been on the podcast before, but uh, where am I talking to you from? I am in San Francisco in California. And how are things in San Francisco right now? We're doing well. Um, I have multiple friends who work for different hospitals and research clinics in the city, and they're gearing up for uh, what might be uh, a peak in, in illnesses. And they're, they're, they've got tents set up in the parking lots and things ready to do triage and ready to handle a surge of illness if it appears. So far, it's not that bad. But because of the sort of exponential nature of these things, they, they, they just don't know what's coming. So people are still walking around um, at, a, at a distance from each other. You still could go to the grocery store. There's still plenty of food in the, on the store shelves and things. Um, people are out getting air and, you know, walking around with baby carriages and dogs and things. But everybody is, you know, is six or eight feet away from each other. And we sort of smile and wave through our masks. Uh, but basically, people are just uh, bored and a little bit anxious, not so much about the illness, because that doesn't feel real yet, uh, but it's the economic uh, consequences of the quarantine that's starting to make people a little antsy. Yeah, so it's March 30th as we're recording this, so uh, really, we just don't know what's going to happen in the next few weeks. Are, are you, is your household uh, secure financially, and uh, what's the mood in your household right now? Uh, we're good, um, and the, the people that we know are our friends and neighbors, and you know, we're, we're in a better position than most people, primarily because uh, we're not soaked in debt. Uh, we have cash in reserve to draw down on. We have multiple sources of income. If one of them goes away, or if two of them goes away, you know, we'll still we'll still manage. Um, but we're thinking about what's going to be happening if this goes on for too much longer. For example, lots of people that we know have seen their companies let multiple staff members off and just say your job has gone away and it's probably not coming back. I have relatives. I have some relatives in Los Angeles actually uh, where both my cousin and her husband both lost their jobs on the same day. And it's clear that those jobs are never coming back because the companies are just going out. They're just just going away permanently. Um, And it's hard to hard to see past next month for, for a lot of people who are just much more vulnerable. So we're okay. Our friends tend to be okay, but we're middle-aged. You know, we've had a chance to build up reserves. You know, it's, it's other more vulnerable populations that are a problem. It's hard to figure out how we're all going to help each other get past this. Yeah, that's, that's a tough one to figure out. Um, you reached out to me because uh, you had just written a blog post on your blog, which is uh, Granola Shotgun, and it, it describes kind of your preparations right now. And um, I wonder if you could describe, like, how did you how did you prepare 
Well, of course, you didn't know this was going to happen, but you were prepared for some kind of uh, situation. What would you describe as uh, the kind of preparations that you've made over the past few years uh, physically? All right. So I have a peculiar uh, personality quirk uh, because of the circumstances of the way I grew up. You know, my my parents struggled with money when I was a little kid and lots of things went wrong as I was growing up. And I was always very much aware of the fact that things can and do go wrong. So starting at early adulthood, as I went out into the world, I always thought, okay, what happens if I don't have a job? What happens if I don't have enough money? What happens if this goes wrong? Or I was constantly doing scenarios in my mind of what could go wrong and then how I might get ahead of that curve. It's just important to me to be prepared for whatever. And I don't even know what the whatever is. I just, you know, I live in earthquake country. We've had all these massive forest fires in the last few years. There's, there's all sorts of dangers out there. So I was never really preparing for a pandemic. I was just preparing for all sorts of things. And it turns out that the things that help you prepare for an earthquake or, or unemployment or whatever also happen to be pretty much the same things that are working right now during the quarantine. You need to stay out of debt. You need to live below your means, not just you know at you know within your budget, but you need to spend less than you earn and save more than you spend and on all those sorts of things. And you need to do that all the time. That's just that's your normal lifetime base. Uh, and I've never made a lot of money. I mean, when I was young, I was really you know below the poverty line for for most of my life, and uh, I still managed to live below whatever I was earning. And it just it's about adjusting your expectations. Um, one of the things that's come in really handy right now is that I've always kept, uh, someone once came to, to the house and, uh, I gave them a quick tour of my, of my pantry and of my reserves. And again, this is a one bedroom apartment in the city. I don't have a lot of space here. It's 700 square feet, but down in the garage, every one of the apartments has a little storage room, like a little locker. It's the size of a small bathroom. It's not a big space. It's like a big closet down in the garage and there's a little grocery store down there. It's lined with shelves. It's got all the canned goods and the, and the paper products and the soap and the shampoo and lots and lots of food. And they kind of mocked me <laughs> because they said, well, like what kind of a freak keeps a grocery store in a garage, you know? And I'm like, yeah, well, okay. So I'm a freak, but this just makes me comfortable. Uh, I know that you know, six months could go by and I'm, I'm not going to have to go to the grocery store for anything except maybe milk and, you know, a few perishables. Um, and part of that deep pantry, it's not just store-bought stuff, but it's stuff that I, I home pressure can, I make my own soups and stews and I can meats and, um, and I do a lot of dehydrating, like when there's a, an abundance of produce at the farmer's market, uh, I can, I can dehydrate that stuff. I can pressure can some of it lately. I've been doing a lot of pickling and fermenting. Uh, so that you don't have to eat mushy canned vegetables in the winter. Um, and I keep a lot of bulk grains and dried beans in the house, not tucked away in, the, in you know, waiting for the zombie apocalypse, but it's just stuff that I use every day. You know, I, I'll, I'll make a Texas-style beef chili, and I have the long-grain rice, and I have the red beans and I have pressure canned some ground beef and I've got the spices on hand. And so I'm just cooking normal everyday meals out of the reserves. So it's not 
like mylar pouches of military rations. It's just food. I just buy more of it. I buy it in bulk. It's very economical. There's like nothing cheaper than a 25 pound sack of beans or rice. Um, and then I turn it into good food. Like I'll make tagine and tagine is, is couscous, which has a long shelf life. And it's, uh, it's, it's lamb, which I can either keep in the freezer or I can pressure can the meat. And then there's dried fruit, which goes into a tagine and then there's the spices and all that stuff can be made shelf stable or, or you can store it over a long period of time. So I'm not actually creating a bunker full of tuna fish. I'm, I'm just living my life in a way that I have a lot of reserves to draw down on. And primarily I'm doing this for financial reasons. You know, if I lose my job, if I have a money problem, the one thing I don't have to think about is putting food on the table. I know that everyone will eat. Uh, and I also have enough that I can share it with my neighbors and my friends when they have difficulties. You know, I've always got people at my kitchen table. So, uh, did I answer your question? Yeah, definitely. But let, let's go back a few months before this crisis. And uh, what what would a typical shopping trip look like for you? Where were you sourcing this food? Um, do you go to Trader Joe's and get frozen stuff? I mean, what 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 did a typical shopping trip look like for you a few months ago? I um, am very eclectic. I don't have a single source. I, I've over the years, and I've been doing this my whole life, is I've figured out that some places are, are better than others for different products. So uh, I have food grade five gallon buckets. They cost about $3 at any big box store or hardware store. And then I get gamma seal lids. And, you know, depending on where you buy them and how many of them you get, they might be like 10 bucks. It has a little gasket so you can twist this uh, this lid onto a, a typical five gallon bucket. And then you want to fill that bucket with something. Now, some things work really well there. Um, rice and, and dry beans do really well. Oatmeal was a, a, a fail on that because oatmeal actually absorbs moisture and it goes stale pretty fast in, in even in a, a sealed bucket. So instead of getting a 25 or a 50 pound sack of oatmeal, the way I would with rice or most of my beans, I started to get those in the large number 10 cans and they come from uh, a company called Honeybill and they're a Mormon operation. They're based in, um, in Salt Lake city, but there were some things that you want to have in a better sealed container uh, that'll have a longer shelf life. And then I can open up that number 10 can of oatmeal and I can make a batch of oatmeal say on Sunday. And then I can just scoop it out every morning and have oatmeal for breakfast and you put cinnamon and you put raisins or whatever you want in your oatmeal. And I can go through a number 10 can of oats pretty much without it going bad, but I couldn't do that with the five gallon buckets because oatmeal was a special thing. Um, cost a little bit more to get the number 10 cans than to store them in the buckets, but that was the right thing for the oatmeal. Um, so there's different kinds of dry goods. Uh, that go into different kinds of containers and that I buy from different places. I'm not shy about going to Costco because Costco has giant sacks of all sorts of things, you know, uh, sea salt and, and sugar and, uh, and stuff. Um, meat. I like to get directly from uh, some farmers uh, because I, I like to give my money directly to the person that's producing the meat. And I also, I go out and visit their farms and I know that the animals are well cared for uh, and then it's grass fed and the local and all that kind of stuff. And I, and it's not a touchy feely thing for me. I'm not doing it 
uh, I'm not a moral person per se. I'm kind of amoral, but I'm looking for uh, disintermediating all of the complexity of the supply chains. Uh, and if I can just have a personal relationship with somebody who's going to give me, uh, like, I'll buy a whole pig, and I'll buy an, a whole lamb, and I'll buy dozens of chickens, and I'll get a, a, a side of beef, I'll get a half a cow all at once from one of these farmers. Um, it's really good quality meat. If you're going, not everybody eats meat, but if you do, you're going to get a, a better quality product. You're going to get it at a at a reasonable price. It's it's not cheap to buy a cow, but if you if you buy in bulk, you're only going to do this once a year, right? And uh, I know some people have a hard time saving money when they have extra income coming in. They'll put it in the bank and they'll think they're going to save it, but somehow it just gets spent. Uh, I know one woman who says she just takes that extra money when they have a surplus and sh and she'll she'll stock the freezer. And then she can't spend the money on something frivolous. And she knows that when the hard times come, she'll put food on the table for months. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's kind of like an enforced savings plan. Uh, I feel good about that. Um, and I'm also always working with friends and neighbors in the neighborhood, encouraging them to set up a freezer. And then we can, we can buy an entire cow and then we can each get a quarter of it and spread it out amongst multiple freezers. It's the same uh, technique I use with uh, emergency earthquake water. I've got tanks that I've installed uh, in the back of my building, but I've also installed water tanks and jugs in everybody's place that I know, anybody that will let me. You know, I'm always installing these water tanks everywhere so that if something happens to my water supply in an earthquake, I can go to my neighbors and my friends' houses, and if something happens for them, they can come here. I'm doing the same thing with a lot of this um, uh, food supply, the sort of this deep extended pantry system. So. To answer your question, sometimes I buy things directly from a farmer, like meat. Sometimes I'll go to a big box store like Costco to get big sacks of uh, dry goods. Uh, sometimes I'll get stuff online from specific suppliers that sell the kinds of things that I need. Uh, and then there's like lots of mom and pop stores and farmers markets that I'll buy other things from. Uh, and on top of that, I have a, a little, um, like a, a second home up in Sonoma County with a half acre. It's not big enough to be a farm. But I've I've cultivated it with an or planted an orchard and put in lots of raised beds and I, I rent the house out to like minded people and I supply all of the materials that they need to cultivate this great garden. They live there so they do most of the tending and together we create more fresh food that, than any of us can eat and we share the harvest. So I'm always sort of going up there and dehydrating things and canning things and, and, and we've got beehives for honey and all that kind of stuff. So I, I get my food from, from every place, you know, there's no one source for it. it just depends on the item that I'm looking to, to acquire and, and store. And you are normally uh, rotating through this food. Is that right? Like when, when times are good, you're rotating through this stock. Yeah. There's never a time when I'm not using this stuff. And so, so I do pressure canning. So I like to pressure can one pint of jars. A pint is a pound. It's, it's a relatively small jar. And I'll make beef stew in a big pot or I'll make a big pot of chicken soup or vegetarian lentils or a split pea with ham. And I make just big, big pots. And then I ladle it into the jars and I pressure can them. And then every morning when I'm heading out to work, I'll just grab one of these jars and that's my lunch. And you can... Uh, use the last the oldest thing gets used first and when i make a new batch it goes into the back of the rotation and i'm constantly moving the jar they're all labeled and dated 
So, uh, you know, I've got stuff that I pressure canned three years ago that I'm eating right now, and the stuff that I pressure canned a couple months ago that's in the back. Uh, and I do the same thing with the dry goods. You know, I've got little jars in my kitchen on the shelf that I use every day. When that jar runs low, I go to my five-gallon buckets, and I top that off. And then when the five-gallon bucket is empty or getting low, I'll go out and I'll buy another big sack and fill up the bucket again. So there is no difference between my emergency food and my everyday food. It's always the same food. I just uh, rotate through it. Now, have you had any problems with pests in the bulk dried goods? In the past, I have, and I learned from my mistakes. So one of the things that I attempted to do, say, 15 years ago, is I thought it would be great to uh, portion things out and put them in mylar bags and then seal them up, you know, use a little like heat sealer. And then I thought, Oh, this is great. And then I'd line them up on the shelf in my, uh, in the storage space in the garage, cause it's cool and it's dark and it's, you know, all that. And, uh, it turns out that mice love all the food I set out for them and they can easily chew through a mylar bag. And I didn't realize it until I would pull one of the bags out and realized that it was empty and the back had been chewed up. So I realized that that's not a good way of storing these things. The five-gallon buckets work really well. Um, mice can't chew through them. And uh, our, now a rat could chew through a plastic bucket without any trouble, except the rats have no idea that the buckets have anything interesting in them. You know, it doesn't smell. I keep it clean. Um, yes, we have rats here. Everybody has rats. Every place in the world, there's humans, there's rats. So it's yeah. not like we have any special infestation. It's just, you know, if there are humans, there's going to be rodents. Um, I've never had a problem with insects because I've always kept everything sealed. Uh, the mylar bags work pretty well to keep bugs out um, until the mice chewed holes into them. So uh, that was that was the only time I had a problem is when I didn't store them in a strong enough container. I have had pantry moths uh, on occasion. I think sometimes the bulk goods come pre-infested, but uh, so I've wondered if you've had that problem. It sounds like you haven't. I haven't, but there's ways around that. Uh, for example, uh, if you have something like rice and you're, or you're worried that it might have bugs in it from the store, you can, you can put it in your oven and you can heat it up, not cook it, just raise the temperature high enough while it's just still dry, uh, you know, like spread it out in a, in, a, in a sheet or something, and that'll sort of sterilize it, and then you can put it back into jars or, or buckets and stuff. I've never had to do that, but I know people who do do that. Or they'll they'll put them into glass jars and seal them up and, and heat them up. So that's one option. But it, I guess I'm just lucky that hasn't happened so far. Yeah, I've heard of dry ice, but I've been too lazy to try that uh, too. But anyways, um, one other question. So we are both uh, mock mill owners, and I am myself am eternally grateful I have a mock mill right now. It's been very handy. Uh, maybe you could explain what that is and how you're using it. Well, you were the one who, who turned me on to the mock mill. So I've always kept wheat, uh, wheat at, like wheat berries. And it, it just kind of looks like a, like a browner version of rice. It's a grain before you turn it into flour. And the reason I like having wheat is that it has an almost infinite shelf life. I mean, obviously, the longer you keep anything stored, the, the more it degrades. But, you know, I think they found like wheat grains in the pyramids and they were still viable, you know, 4,000 years later. But uh, flour really does go off pretty quickly, you know, the longer you, especially if it's humid or if it's too hot or whatever. So by storing wheat, uh, I can then scoop out a couple of cups. I can mill it into flour 
fresh and then do my baked goods, my bread and whatnot. Um, the old mill that I have, which I still have, was a, a manual um, uh, mill that was made by, I think, Mennonites or the Amish or something. And it works really well. You put it on a hopper, you crank the handle, it comes out. But it's it's big, heavy thing. It's not something you can just sit out in the kitchen. You have to kind of bolt it down to a workbench, which I kept down in the garage. Um, and, it, you know, it's, it was a lot of work to grind flour by hand. Uh, the mock mill is much smaller. Uh, it attaches to my KitchenAid mixer. It's designed to do that. Uh, so I can just store it on a shelf in the kitchen. I can take it out when I need it, plug it into the front of my uh, KitchenAid mixer, and, and it's electric, which is fantastic. So I like having the manual grinder as a backup if the power goes out. And I know I can bake bread on a barbecue in the back of my building if I really had to. I can put it in a Dutch oven and, and, and still cook. And I have a lot of propane set aside. Uh, but I love the mock mill because it's small, because it does the job really well. It's electric. I already The, the bulk of the mechanism is already my KitchenAid. That's the, the motor that runs it. And it does a great job of, of milling wheat into flour. So uh, it creates another layer of redundancy. You know, like it's just, I'm internalizing all of the processes and all of the storage that the larger systems no longer have. You know, they're so hyper-efficient that there's, there's, there's nothing to fall back on if the supply chains break down or if the power goes out. And I just love having these options. Like I, I know I'll have fresh baked bread, even if the lights go out, even if the stores don't have any food. And that's extremely comforting to me emotionally like i'm not panic buying toilet paper at costco right now i just don't need to do that and the mock mill is one of those things that makes that possible right actually one of your readers said you have a quote strong breakfast game which uh, <laughs> i think was pretty funny <laughs> and and true if you go to the blog and see what you've been making it looks really good right now yeah um how are you handling uh tea and coffee because, uh, of course, uh, lack of caffeine and on top of anxiety is a very bad combo. So I'm wondering uh, what your tea and coffee game is right now. I am a tea drinker. Uh, I, I like the idea of coffee. I like the way it smells. I don't mind the taste. But uh, I've just never been able to digest it. It bothers my stomach too much. Maybe it has acid or something in it. But I don't know why. But I'm a tea drinker. And it's really easy to store tea. It's, it's dried leaves. You can keep them in tins and, and, and glass jars and whatnot. So tea is easy to store. And I have a lot of it, lots of different kinds. Coffee is more interesting. Um, uh, our household has other people who cannot function without the coffee. And it was one of those critical weaknesses. And I realized after doing some research that coffee beans have a really, really long shelf life before they're roasted. So when you, when you take unroasted coffee beans, they have no real coffee smell. They just look like pinto beans or something. I mean, they're just another dried bean. And you put them in a sealed container and they will last for a long, long, long time. And if you buy it in bulk, again, you know, big 25 and 50 pound sacks, it's actually not that much per pound. It's, it's, a, it's a very economical way of buying your coffee. And you can get a, a year's supply of coffee, you know, up front, keep it in some five gallon buckets with tightly sealed lids and lots of bad things could happen and you're still going to have your coffee that created the need to figure out how to roast your coffee at home. And it turns out it's not 
that hard. Uh, if you can pop popcorn, you can roast your own coffee beans. There's a trick to it. There's a learning curve, but it's not hard. You just have to do it. Um, I started off experimenting with a, uh, a popcorn popper. It's a stovetop popcorn popper. It's a little pot with a, a, a wire at the bottom that you can turn a crank and it kind of keeps the beans moving at the bottom of the pot while you're heating them up. And they literally crack. Just the way popcorn starts to pop, you know, the little coffee beans, they crack. And you can hear them and you can kind of get a sense from the smell when it starts to smell really good. And you can time it. And, you know, you can roast your own coffee. After a while, though, that kind of got old because if you're not paying attention, and I am easily distracted, uh, you can burn the beans and then it's not so good. So I went ahead and I got an electric coffee roaster, which is this little thing. It's smaller than a blender and it's just a little uh, countertop appliance. And you put the beans in and you set it and it roasts the beans in five minutes in little batches. You know, so you put in a, you know, half a cup or however many beans you want to do. And that's enough to get you through a week. Uh, so now you've got fresh roasted coffee beans. It's affordable if you buy it in bulk. And the only thing that you have to do after that is you have to grind the beans. And I got a hand grinder. It's a little device. You put in a scoop of your roasted beans. You hand grind it into the powder. And then you can cook it in whatever way you, you want to do your coffee. We use a French press, but you, know, you can use whatever kind of coffee maker you want. The hand grinder is great. If there's a power failure, you can still make your coffee. But we then got a, an electric grinder. It's, again, it's another little machine. That's, I got like, you know, how many little machines do we all have sitting on our kitchen counters? It's, it's quite small, and, and you can pop the, the roasted beans in there, and it'll grind them for you in 30 seconds. So it, it's a, what we're doing is we're recreating all of the supply chains that you normally just you go to Starbucks and they give you the, the coffee. Well, you can do all of those things in your own home. Uh, you just have to kind of backtrack. Start where do, where do the beans come from? How do you store them? How do you roast them? How do you grind them? How do you make the coffee? And two, I do that with just every single thing in my life. Two questions on that. Uh, where are you getting your beans from? And then what is the, the, is the roaster you have? I'm curious because I was thinking of getting one of those too. I have the popcorn popper, but I was thinking of upgrading to an electric one. Yeah, so I get my beans, I'm lucky, because I live in San Francisco, right across the bay in Oakland, we have Sweet Maria's, Yeah. and Sweet Maria's, uh, it, they have beans from Indonesia, and from Africa, and the Caribbean, and all the, the different places, um, and I bought not only my beans from her, but I got uh, the, it's called the Fresh Roast SR500, that's the electric roaster. And it's, I, I kind of describe it as like a hairdryer, you know, like it blows hot air from a little motor up through a glass canister. And, and you can see, you, you put in a little bit of beans at the bottom of the glass canister, you turn it on, it blows this hot air up there, it, it pops and it expands. It's just like popcorn, the beans like double or triple in size as you heat them and they, and they kind of crack and pop open. And then you get that wonderful coffee smell. So uh, Sweet Maria's for the beans, and I actually bought my device from her, but I'm sure other people sell them, and it's called the Fresh Roast SR500. Not terribly expensive. And um, another thing, question is, how are you handling milk? There's been a, seems to be a run on that right now. Milk is highly perishable. A lot of people have children, and milk is important for a lot of households. You know, 
I, I like milk in my tea and I like it in my breakfast cereal and you use it in all kinds of recipes. And milk is one of the first things that goes on the, on the supermarket shelves uh, in a panic. Um, so I have lots of different kinds of milk-like substances in my storage. I have tins of milk and sometimes that's something like, um, like carnation or uh, la lechera. You know, and sometimes it's the condensed milk and sometimes it's the sweetened condensed milk. Uh, I have cans of coconut milk. I have Tetra packs of like the little paper and foil boxes of cream, which is shelf stable. I get that from Trader Joe's if they have it. Um, I have uh, larger Tetra packs of almond milk. Uh, you know, there's soy milk and there's oat milk and there's a million different kinds of milky things that don't need to be refrigerated. And I have lots of them. And some things work well. Like I, I don't mind putting a coconut milk into a recipe that calls for milk if it's going to be like a savory dish. Like, you know, it, you, you can use it in gravies and things. And it, it tastes a little bit coconutty, and it, but it's, it's okay, you know. Um, some things, the almond milk works pretty well for, for cereal. Um, you just have to use the right mm, substitute for the right purpose. But the idea is not to just do one thing, but I have lots of different different milk substitutes that happen to be shelf-stable. Uh, before I started recording, we, we actually were talking about the emotional aspect of this crisis, and I'm wondering how you're dealing with that and uh, how other people that you know are dealing with the kind of like emotional landscape of this particular crisis. Everybody has a different temperament. Um, I am weird, and <laughs> when things are going really well, I am squirrely. I, I, I'm because of the the awkward circumstances of my growing up. It, I was always sort of like, okay, everyone says things are going fine. What's wrong? <laughs> you know, I'm, mm -hmm. I'm not comfortable when things are good, and I'm always wondering when the other shoe is going to drop. And that's just my quirks. When there's a crisis, I, I relax completely. Because now I'm in my, my natural habitat of crisis. You know, this is kind of like, you know, um, my moment to shine. It's like, oh, no, I got this. I was waiting for whatever, whatever the crisis was. I was waiting for it. I'm prepared. I've got everything I need to get through this. And uh, the, the people around me who uh, thrive in good times, they tend to fall apart when there's a crisis because they're, they're, they're used to a routine. They like predictability. They're used to things running smoothly. And when the outside world doesn't uh, fall in line with the standard stuff, they, they, they freak out. So I'm actually incredibly calm right now. Uh, and I'm a great resource for the people around me who are nervous because I can say, no, we're, we're good. We, we got everything we need. Do you need anything? Cause I've got like nine of them. You can have one of mine. We're, we're good. Uh, and having uh, like a nice meal really helps because it, you know, it's like comfort food and there's, there's, it's, there's obvious that there's plenty to go around. There's no shortage, you know, um, this crisis, the quarantine is tricky because you can't get together with people. You, right. you can't, you know, bundle up and be together and feed people, which is my natural instinct. Um, and I've been, Skyping and Zooming and, you know, all the, you know, all the electronic ways of communicating with people, but it's not the same. Um, so 
I'm actually in a really great space emotionally, but a lot of other people are having trouble. And again, it kind of goes back to the money end of it. Um, one of the big problems uh, that we're all dealing with is that all of our problems are, are, as Americans are typically solved with money. You have a problem and you, you solve it by, by spending money. And when the money dries up, you wind up with all this debt and all that you have to service all these loans and you know, and you've solved all your problems with money and then money itself becomes the problem. And again, I will not allow myself to be in that position. So, you know, lots of terrible things can go on financially and I'm still going to be okay. Uh, whereas a lot of other people took advantage of leverage to buy things they, they probably couldn't really afford when times were good. And now that they're starting to lose their jobs or they're thinking that they might be losing their jobs, that's really the source of their angst. And I don't have that. You mentioned this uh, just briefly, but of course, one of the really awkward aspects of what we're in right now is this social distancing problem. And I'm wondering if you've had this problem of being around people that maybe aren't taking it seriously, whereas you're taking it seriously. And how have you, you know, some people are still getting together, basically. Um, how have you navigated that uh, type of situation? Um, nobody in my immediate, you know, circle is um, going off to concerts or, or, you know, doing anything terribly egregious. So I don't have to have those conversations with anybody. Um, I think that younger people in the neighborhood, I see them out in the park. Um, young people are just, they feel immortal, you know, because they're, they're strong and they're healthy and, and they, they don't necessarily get how they might not be affected by this, but they might bring it home to grandma. Uh, you know, but I, I don't need to have those conversations because nobody that I know has done that. Um, I just see clusters of people out in the world and I just walk around them. So, um, I'm also really not preachy. My, my philosophy has always been that failure tends to fix itself. Um, I, I don't, you know, I, we're going to go down a rabbit hole. Um, <laughs> but, but when, when somebody doesn't believe in something, when they don't believe that a problem exists or they don't believe that it's serious enough, they tend to take risks and kind of just ignore the problem. And, uh, if they're right, they're fine. You know, like they, they can just say, hey, yeah, I, I told you it was no big deal. But uh, in some situations, people have that attitude and then they wind up feeling the consequences of not taking the problem seriously. Like people who take on huge amounts of debt because they think the economy is never going to go into recession. Well, they're going to have that failure fixes itself moment. Uh, there are people who are going to say, well, you know, there's, there's no reason why I should take precautions. Uh, all, all of this, a bunch of hoo-ha about the quarantine. Well, some of them are going to get sick or people that they know are going to get sick. And then they'll have that, they'll have that awakening. If, if it's truly a problem, they will find out the hard way. Uh, and I'm okay with that. I, I, I really do believe that Darwin needs to take its course. Um, I know an awful lot of people uh, who haven't vaccinated their children. I don't have a horse in this race. I, I don't care if you do or don't vaccinate your children. I don't care. I don't have a, but I remember my great uncle, Tony and my aunt Hilda, they had five children. One of them died of polio in the 1950s, just before the Salk vaccine came out. And there's no way that you can tell anybody in that generation that vaccines are bad because they watched their daughter die 
from a disease that could have been uh, got, you know, vaccinated. So I think that we're just, um, people need to feel the consequences of their decisions for better or for worse uh, over time. And I think that for Americans in particular, there have been, there have been so many decades that have gone by where we haven't felt the direct effects of these things mm-hmm. that we, we don't realize that there, there really are problems. And we're going to find out the hard way what things are real and what things aren't. We're going to feel what it's like to be Russian or Syrian or something else like that. I mean, this is mild compared to what other people in the world have gone through, of course. But um, um, I think that's what you're alluding to. Yeah. So I was one of those kids uh, in like when the Berlin Wall came down in 89. And I was one of those young people that loaded up the duffel bag full of uh, blue jeans and and went off to to. Russia and I went from Leningrad to Moscow and I actually wound up living with Russian families, you know, that, that year and um, having this big adventure. And I was amazed at how durable the Russian people are, mm-hmm. how um, they, they were used to bad things happening, like really dreadfully, horribly bad things happening over and over and over again. And they were, they were pretty good about it. They rolled up their sleeves and they just got on with things. Um, the women in particular were the ones who just like fixed, fixed what was wrong. Like their economy collapsed, their money had no value. The government just dissolved and there was, there was a vacuum for years, you know, where, and they said, well, we still need to put food on the table. You know, let's plant the garden. They, you know, the ladies in the neighborhood would get together and they would just figure stuff out. Um, and I think that if the same exact things had happened to Americans, uh, it would have been much uglier because people just have such weird expectations about things and nobody's emotionally prepared for, for what, what we might be experiencing in the future. Another weird aspect of this is the, the Venn diagram in which <laughs> you and I sort of exist in where we're, you know, maybe reading the guardian and carrying a guardian tote bag, but also listening to Jack Spierko's survival podcast. I'm oh like, yeah. I love Jack Spierko. Im- right. Yeah, and I mean, Curtis Stone and a bunch of other people. Yeah. He was very nice to us. He had us when we had our, uh, sort of like, um, crisis with the, um, with the trademark dispute, he actually had us on and told his listeners to buy our book, which was very nice of him to do. Uh, but nevertheless, it's it's odd to live in, you know, we're in coastal elite cities, but also now, you know, we've, we've been proponents of, of a you know, what's sometimes called a prepper lifestyle. I wondered what your thoughts on that word prepper are and how you're kind of like negotiating this this odd Venn diagram situation that, that we seem to be in right now. So I... Um... I don't shy away from flying my freak flag and uh, there's kind of like, you know, like I've never been interested in being normal or conforming. I I just, you know, it doesn't appeal to me. Like I, I would be back in suburban New Jersey with my sisters and my brother and, and, you know, my extended family living in a cul-de-sac, you know, doing the normal thing. If that's what interested me, but I, not, not my thing. So I call myself a prepper. I like the term prep stetter, like part prepper, part homesteader. Um, uh, and I, everybody gives me crap about it. Like everybody I know thinks I'm insane. <laughs> and I'm okay with that. Like, it's like, yeah, okay, that's fine. You know, but but I, I've discovered that like by promoting earthquake preparedness, by saying, you know, you need water in reserve for the earthquake. Because I've talked to the fire marshal 
And she's telling people that when the pipes break, you're not going to have water and we're not going to be able to fix them for a long time. So you need water and you need more than you think. And I, I preach this and people roll their eyes and they, yeah, 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 yeah. And then we have a little baby earthquake, a little trick, just enough to shake you out of your bed at four in the morning without breaking anything. And then the next day I get the calls and the emails and the texts. Like, John, do you remember you were talking about that? Yeah, I'll be over with the things. Yeah, I got it. So uh, this, um, uh, the health situation that we're dealing with right now, honestly, there's plenty of food in the stores. There isn't a problem. We're mm-hmm. good. But, but people are beginning to understand that sometimes things do go wrong out of the blue that nobody's thinking about. And wouldn't it be nice? If you, you know, to just have things to fall back on. And uh, the, 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 the joke, you know, when people start to tease me about being a prepper, is first of all, I tell them, I'm just doing everything that our great-grandparents used to do a century ago. There's nothing weird about it. I'm not holed up in a, in a missile silo in North Dakota with Kalashnikovs. That's, that's not what I'm doing. Other people do that. That's fine. You know, mazel tov, enjoy. But that's not my thing. I'm just, I'm just doing the stuff that our great-grandparents did because they lived in a world where things did go wrong all the time and it wouldn't occur to them to not have food in the house because only crazy people would allow themselves to starve. Right. The other thing I tell them is, uh, you know, you need to do this in your home as well, because if something happens to my house in an earthquake, I want to be able to come to your place. And if something happens to you, I want you to be able to come here. And, and they tend to like the, oh, I'll come to your house in a crisis part, but they're not <laughs> real keen on the, they're going to do it there. So my response is, look, make sure when you come to my house in a crisis that you bring small bills, because I'm not going to make change. Hey, John, are you still there? I'm still here. Okay. Excuse me? Oh, no, no, no. I, I thought I lost you for a second. Yeah. So, but of course, that's, again, it's now they can't come to your house, right? So I guess... Because, you know, the stereotype of the prepper with the Kolesnikov in the bunker is that it's all about them, their individuals, it's part of the hyper-individual like aspect of American culture. Um, what What is your response to that? What is, you know, how do we make communities that are more robust? Right now, we're still in the highly symbolic uh, phase of whatever is going on. And, you know, my, my guess is that, you know, a, a month or two from now, the, the, the crisis will have passed, the, uh, uh, the disease will tend to, be, to fizzle out in the summer as the weather changes, and then everyone will go back to normal. And everything that we're doing now will, will basically be symbolic. Like, I, I'll make fresh bread, and I'll make extra loaves, and I'll, I'll drop them off at the doorsteps of some of the people in the neighborhood. And there's, there's an older lady that lives next door and that sort of thing. And, you know, and then she'll, she'll have to go up there and pick it up with tongs or something. I don't know. But um, so those are just symbolic things. But I'm uh, I can't be physically with the neighbors and friends, but I can communicate with them and I can I can do little things like like leave little baskets of, of fresh bread. You know, it, it reminds people that we are together in this, even if we can't see each other physically. Um, what I'm concerned about is that next fall and next winter, uh, the epidemiologists suggest that these things tend to bounce back. They boomerang right. and it has to play out over a couple of years until we get enough humans around the planet that, that it becomes endemic and it becomes, uh, we get the herd immunity and that uh, 
because we've been relatively relatively successful at at minimizing the number of people who get really sick and die from this, that we're not going to take the next boomerang uh, seriously enough. That that we won't want to close all the shops. That we're not going to want to make these these quarantine sacrifices, and that that will actually create more problems like a year or two from now. We don't know how that's going to play out. Now, I'm not saying it's going to happen. I'm saying that it's a possibility. And um, I'm, I'm a little worried about, about the, the cultural and the political ramifications if we have round two and then we have real problems, you know, because we, because we were relatively good at dealing with it this time. We'll kind of we'll slack off the next time. And that, that could create all kinds of problems. Yeah, definitely. Um, I mean, our our book, of course, came out around 2008, our first book in the midst of uh, the previous crisis, which seems pretty tame compared to this one. Uh, attention sort of drifted off over the years as the economy came back. My phone stopped ringing. It's ringing again. Um, mm -hmm. I guess the challenge is uh, to make this particular lifestyle that we're interested in appealing in good times and um, to, you know, for, for people to take it up, not because there's an impending crisis, but because it is a worthwhile pursuit in itself. Um, would you agree with that? How, how do you see your particular lifestyle? I'm a, just a generally happy person, weird, freaky, but just generally quite happy. And like I said, um, when times are good, I get a little squirrely. And when times are bad, I'm just, I'm, I'm able to write things out. Trying to convince other people to, to get ahead of the curve in good times is, is pointless. It, it just doesn't work. People right. just, they just don't, don't do it. So you have to get, you have to give up on that, Eric. You, 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 you can no longer attempt to persuade anybody to do anything. What you need to do is realize that when things do go wrong, that's the teachable moment. That's when you share your expertise and you, you try to get people to do a little bit. I, I'm telling you, I, nobody preaches this stuff more than I do. And nobody I know does any of it at all. They just don't. And that's okay. You know? Again, failure fixes itself. There yeah. will be a moment when people will need food in the house and they don't have it, and they're going to muddle through. And Americans, for the most part, will not starve. Okay? There's so much uh, slack in our system. There's so much abundance here that, that we could cut things by 50% and, and there'd still be plenty of food for everybody. That's not to say that there aren't vulnerable populations. I grew up as a vulnerable population. I know what that feels like. It's not mm -hmm. fun. But I, I don't think people are going to starve. I think the big problem that Americans have to deal with is the, uh, is the, the jarring emotional aspects of, of a crisis where, where people are unprepared for an economic problem. They're unprepared for a, a, a health problem. They're unprepared for earthquakes and, and, and floods and hurricanes and, and all the things that it doesn't matter where you live, you've got something, right? Uh, and it's, it's the gap between people's expectations and physical reality that creates a culture and a political environment that creates a much bigger problem. Like dealing with the pandemic, dealing with, with a natural disaster, it, we can do that. That's not terribly hard. We just don't want to. And then we have to deal with the fact that we didn't want to, and then we get the crisis anyway. And that's the much bigger problem. And there's no way to fix that, Eric. You have to suck it up. 
Well, so I'm going to push push you on that a little bit. So I don't want to individualize this problem too much. What what would you say about what we need to do collectively? Because we are going to have a lot of people who can't make the make their rent. They're unemployed. Uh, we may see uh, you know another round of corporate uh, welfare essentially, but uh, but working people will get the shaft. Uh, what do you think we should do collectively about that problem? I don't have a strong political perspective. I'm omnivorous and amoral. I'm interested in reality and how we get through it. Collectively, it doesn't matter who's in, a, uh, who's in the White House or, or which senator or congressperson you have. None of that matters because both parties do exactly the same things. There's zero difference. You can go from from you know, from Reagan to Bush to Clinton to Obama to all of them. they're they're all all they're all doing the same exact things. There's a lot of window dressing. There's a lot of dog whistles. There's all this sort of cosmetic, superficial stuff that everything is wrapped in. But when you look at the actual underlying policies, it's all the same. Stuff that Democrats say they'll never do, they do it all the time. Stuff that Republicans say, oh, that's good, they do it, it, it because external reality presses in, and there's no choice. We're not dealing with bad uh, political parties or bad leaders. You can argue that all day long. It doesn't matter. What we're dealing with is a hyper-complex set of interlocking systems. And they're brittle and they're vulnerable. They work really well until they don't. And when they stop working and they freeze up, you know, the, the supply chains from, you know, uh, from Asia and Europe and Latin America and the ships and the planes and the, and all the financing that makes all that possible, you know, and then the energy supplies that are required to keep everything flowing properly. All of those things require all the other things to work perfectly all the time, you know, and you, you can't have one little piece of that system fail without every other thing starting to go down like dominoes. So, um, we're going to have a crisis. The dominoes are going to start to knock each other over. Things are going to get weird. That's not the problem. The problem is the way we're going to react. We're going to look for people to blame. We're going to want to punish people who did this to us. And that's, that's what freaks me out. Um, it's, it's not the physical stuff because we can fix that. It's the, it's the, the herd stampeding. And a lot of people are going to get stepped on along the way. So I, I don't even remember if I answered your question correctly, but, <laughs> but that's what keeps me up at night. We could spend a couple of hours on that question. That's a that's a deep one. Um, maybe when we're getting near the end of the hour here, so I'm wondering if there's anything that I didn't ask that you would like to talk about before we close. I want to talk about my cousin and her husband down in Los Angeles because they are the most normal people I know. They're just like Mr. and Mrs. Regular Average. And they have struggled so much um, since the 2008 crash. They never really recovered from that. And um, uh, there was, we've had, like, it's been a dozen years now, and we've had so many conversations and visits, and we, and we would sit down and we continually talked past each other without ever overlapping. And their um, perspective is they're hardworking, 
they're honest, they each have a, a university degree, they're, they have talent and skills, and they need a, somebody to give them a job so they can earn the money so that they could buy the, the middle-class suburban life that they feel they're entitled to. And that has not happened. Mm-hmm. And they went from being 50-ish to being 60-ish in the last decade. And they've just kept falling farther and farther behind. And um, uh, three or four weeks ago, I remember talking to my cousin's husband, and he just talked to a bank and just got pre-qualified for a $300,000 mortgage. And the next week, the quarantines hit in. He lost his job. My cousin lost her job. Mm-hmm. And they're back to zero. And they're, they're back to 2008 again. Wow. And they're pissed off. And I think they're representative of a big chunk of the country. And they didn't have to do what they did for the last 12 years. They really didn't. Like, as hard as it's been for them, they could have set different goals. They could have reorganized their lives along different principles. And they, they could have been in a really good, strong position right now. Um, but they weren't interested in anything else. They wanted that, that house in a good neighborhood in the suburbs, in a respectable school district, and they just needed the money and they kept focusing on how do we make the money? How do we get back to buying that thing that we, that they, we deserve? And they failed. And they're technically, I mean, honestly, once you hit 60, it's over, right? And they have nothing to fall back on. People need to change the way they think about these things. And I don't think we can do it. I think a lot of people are just going to hit a wall, be angry, and it's not going to end well. And I think that's representative of the larger society. I don't know how you fix that. I don't think you do. I, think you, you, I don't think there are solutions. I think that there are just consequences that we have to absorb. And it's going to be unpleasant for a period of time. So yelling, wake up, sheeple doesn't work. Is that what you're saying? No. It, it's, there's no point in doing that. But it might be nice if you as a household set an example for people mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. also have a plan B. <laughs> if things get really weird, you need, you need, a, you need an exit strategy. <laughs> That's in case, just in case you happen to be one of the people that people decide to blame. You need, you need to know how you're going to manage that problem. That's a whole different thing. Well, yeah, not to mention, related to this is how to, how to deal with far-flung relatives, which, which we've had to deal with, like what to do, how to convince them to take this seriously. Then once the crisis is in play, do we go there? Do they come here? You know, these sort of really tricky questions right now. And I don't have an easy answer for that. I think failure fixes itself. I think people <laughs> just have to, have to yeah. suck up the consequences of not of not altering there's too much of a gap between how you perceive the world and external reality. And you can fill that gap in all sorts of different ways. You can, you can, you can modify things, you can bend and you can wiggle or you can just break. And I think a lot of people are just going to break and that's sad, but you know, failure fixes itself. All right. Well, on that happy note, uh, Johnny, uh, what, <laughs> uh, how do people find you on the Internet? What is your website? GranolaShotgun.com. It's a blog, mostly pictures, and a little bit of words. 
a great blog. Okay. Well, yes. Thank you so much, Johnny, for uh, being on the Root Simple podcast. I also want to thank all the Patreon supporters who support this blog and this podcast. And I hope you will all go visit uh, Johnny over at Granola Shotgun. So thank you so much, Johnny. Bye, Eric.